This week on the Stretch Four Podcast, I have a guest, Mr. Dan Miller. Dan Miller is currently the Chief Executive Officer and Founder at Spora Health. Uh, Spora Health is a unique platform in the health care and lifestyle management space. Think of them like a one medical, but it's built discreetly for people of color. Dan is a three-time founder. He's a Howard alumni. He lives here in the Bay Area, Oakland to be specific. It was awesome to have Dan as a guest on the show. His expertise is around designing and building out products for specific demographics. And he's been able to build Spora Health to be quite the company. They've raised venture from the likes of M13 Ventures out of LA. And he's building a B2B business now as he works directly with employers, as employers offer Spora Health as a service to their employees. So really enjoyed this show. Thanks for listening. Just got the interview today. I will be back next week with a typical rollout of my takes on what's happening in the venture-backed startup ecosystem. Check out the newsletter at stretch4.substack.com for more information and look forward to hearing from you all. Thanks a lot. Hope everybody's having a great week. Welcome to the Stretch Four Podcast, where we have conversations with game changers, leaders, innovators within the venture back industrial complex. Today, we're thrilled to have Dan Miller, who's the chief executive officer and founder of Spora Health, which we'll get into. He's joining us today here in San Francisco. Dan has had an impressive background. He's a three-time serial entrepreneur, uh, so he's done this more than once. He's also one of the few African-Americans that has raised over a million dollars in venture capital, which is a very, very small percentage of people that are actually raising venture capital. He's the founder currently of a VC-backed telehealth company, Spora. It's an honor to have you as a guest today, Dan, once we figured out our technical difficulties here. We're in person, but we're not in person, but uh, excited to have you on the show, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, fam. Really happy to be here. Thanks so much for making time. Oh yeah, for sure. So Dan, we are a founder focused podcast and you know, getting right into the, the the weeds of being a founder right now, you've raised venture capital. Maybe start with your expense, your experience of it, why you did it, maybe why you raised venture capital for your current business, and then what's that experience been like, and then what's it like today for, for the audience that are maybe in that early fundraising experience right now or debating whether to go out and raise money. Like what's it been like for you? Yeah. So Sport Health is a virtual primary care practice uniquely designed for the needs of people of color, specifically focusing on Black and Latino Americans. And the business was born out of some research that I was doing back towards the end of 2019 and also thinking about my own lived experience. I knew that I wanted to start another company and really was looking inward to figure out you know, what I was really excited about, what I was really passionate about, and also just big gaps that existed in the market. And having already launched a business in digital health back in 2015, I knew a lot about sort of the, the state of the market and, and where things were in terms of innovation that was happening, you know, as it relates to primary care, mental health, you know, digital therapeutics, et cetera. And one thing that I kept seeing as a gap across all of these sort of subcategories was the lack of attention and focus on addressing inequities and disparities, specifically race-based inequities and disparities. And I didn't see anyone really out there trying to build a really large business that took into account 
these inequities and, and they had fresh perspectives and innovations to um, address them head on and it not be an afterthought. And so with that in mind, I, I knew that I needed help to, <laughs> to realize that vision. Like no one company is going to to solve inequities or disparities uh, and that, you know, large problem here in the United States and globally. And so when I started the business at the end of 2019, I knew that I was going to need to raise venture capital if I was going to be competitive in the marketplace, if I was going to be able to realize this really big, bold vision that that I had and had, had sort of talked to you know, a few of my friends about, you know, it, it's silver lining, but it has to be said, like the pandemic was something that put a lot of eyes and visibility onto the problem. And you know, arguably there was never a better time in history to start a business like ours. Not only did the pandemic put eyes on the state of inequities and disparities in, in, in the US, but also a lot of the social unrest that was taking place and following the murders of, of folks like George Floyd and others, putting a lot of emphasis on better supporting uh, Black Americans in particular, but also thinking broadly about actionable ways to address inequities that exist outside of healthcare as well. That allowed me to be a bit more effective in, in fundraising. But those were some of the the reasons that that went into uh, my decision to, to raise venture capital. And, and happy to to share a little bit more about my experience because it's it's it, it varies significantly from you know your pre-seed round, you know, your first round of, of institutional capital all the way up to, you know, your series A round and, and beyond as well. Yeah. So I think that's a very interesting, you brought up some very kind of relevant points. You started this business, which is, as we get more into it, is around the inequitable experience of healthcare as it particularly experienced by people of color. You also related it to the fact that you did it during the pandemic when obviously the unfortunate circumstances of George Floyd led to this outcry and this almost I almost think of it like a like a, a outlier experience in at least in my venture back journey of where everybody top of mind was like you know how do we help black people or how do we help people of color and and it 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 kind of flowed out into the venture economic ecosystem so I'm assuming at that point in time not only for the business you're building but the the, the actual interest in venture capital and in, institutional capital flowing into those ideas was 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 quite top of mind versus how it is in its most natural state, where usually we don't think of this, our demographic, Black people, when it comes to this, we, we don't get thought of. We're not the first people people think of starting these companies. How were you able to leverage that at that stage? And then maybe walk us through, you know, as you've evolved, because I hear all these stories of people that were able to raise money then, they were able to get people on the call then, fast forward three years later, and it's just as bad as it ever was, or just as you know, hard as it ever was, or maybe harder now, because you had a kind of recessionary environment, plus the fact that like, oh, shit, we really don't care about equity because like our returns aren't good. That's our first priority. So let's forget, we, let's forget DEI ever existed. How has that kind of the experience of starting a company during that time evolved to now where we're kind of at the almost antithesis of that or at the opposite end of that spectrum? Yeah. So yeah, this is a really good point. So now uh, you're right. So, you know, and, you know, I, I mentioned there was never a better time in history to start a business like mine. And that was, I think, objectively true. And there was just a lot more interest in supporting entrepreneurs of color, et cetera. And so all that really does is give you more access and more sort of visibility into your deal. It doesn't change 
the sort of criteria that's needed to to raise capital. And so putting it another way, like I don't think it was easier to raise capital. It was easier to get meetings for sure, but still ran the same old bullshit. Like, like it was, you know, it, like there was just, which was, um, it actually helped me learn to be a bit more discerning with my time and who I was taking meetings with and also sussing out from the first five minutes, whether or not, you know, this was a conversation that was actually going to go somewhere or if, you know, folks on the other side of the table were just sort of information seeking or were appeasing, you know, sort of external social sort of pressures to sort of take these meetings and then and, and take a look at some of these businesses that they may not particularly be as excited about, which is very real. And, and so, you know, tangible sort of takeaway for the audience here, you, uh, when you're fundraising, it's not as algorithmic as you might think, or as some content out there on the internet suggests. You're ultimately dealing with one, maybe two other people on the other side of the table that have to believe in not just your thesis, you know, the, the business that you have already created that you, or that you want to create, the team that you have, they have to believe in you and believe in the future that you are suggesting that you can create and that it's valuable and that you are the person that can do it. Yeah. And that, that process is riddled with bias yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's just, it's just, you know, you're, yeah. it's, it's inherently is because when we talk to people like, our brains are looking for heuristics and shortcuts to take to believe the person that's on the other side of the table. Exactly. And that we empirically, we know, you know, I'm not just making this up. There are studies that have proven this, that Black Americans are on the, the short end of that stick um, yeah. more often than not. And specifically, lack of believability, the, the bar to, to reaching validation is higher for, for Black Americans than also if Black Americans tend to demonstrate sort of personality traits or other sort of behaviors that like folks that are in the majority demonstrate as well, they tend to have a backlash. They, mm -hmm. they tend to be viewed as, you know, this person is, you know, they have sharp elbows or, you know, they're, you know, they don't listen, these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and so this also happens empirically with women as well. Yeah. And so I mentioned those things because again, yes, it was easier to get meetings, but People, the human nature doesn't change overnight just because there's a pandemic and more black folks were getting killed and, and, and you know, the, the recordings were, were, were shared across the internet. Like, you know, you still had to deal with the folks in, in, in the room. And so it was, it was challenging finding the right partners to bring on board in, in all the noise. But mm -hmm. thankfully we did. We found some incredible investors across our pre-seed round and our seed round. And, and I'm super grateful for, for their support then and their continued support now because it allowed us to get out into the world and and start to innovate and create a really amazing product that's producing some awesome outcomes. And 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 as you think about that, like obviously you had to fight through to get the noise. How did you think about the right partners in that kind of piggyback off the same kind of concept? There were definitely funds that were more, you know, at least from a PR marketing perspective, more involved with, hey, we're we're really gonna invest in more black founders. How much of that actually was just you know, PR and media, did it actually, did you see, did the funds you work with, were they actually truth tellers in that regard? Or was it just completely agnostic of that? You wanted to work with them because of other parts of the reasoning, right? They're, they're good with thinking about telehealth or they were good with thinking about healthcare as it pertains to underserved populations. What went into your line of thinking? Because I think a lot of founders typically, you know, you see the 
numbers and you see all these firms, it seems like every there everybody almost is a VC. How do you how do you weed through the noise to know who you want to work with and what what makes them good beyond obviously them funding you and sending wires? What makes them a good investor and how do you how do you classify that? Yeah, this is this is a, an incredible topic. Something that this is knowledge that you can really only gain having gone through the process. Yeah. So so I'm I'm really happy that you you asked the question. So first is I didn't do a great job. Okay. Like we, we being like our, our, our team were really clear on what we needed to build our processes, where capital was going to be deployed, you know, and our, our general strategy for sure over, you know, the, the three to five years after, you know, raising our pre-seed round. And so we were, and we had the skills on the team. And so we were, we were a really well-oiled machine for yeah. sure because of that. I, and I recognized, like zooming out, I recognized the time period that we were in and that it, it was really critical for us to to get started quickly mm-hmm. and not sort of delay processes trying to, you know, optimize specific terms or be a bit more sort of engineering with the financing. Like we really just needed to like hit the ground running, take advantage of the time that we were in and really start building, which, which we did. And I, I mentioned that because I think I could have and probably should have been a bit more thoughtful about the some of the skills of the investors that were coming onto the cap table around then because ultimately but just you know put a pin in that sort of uh, time period that was back in you know late 2020 early 2021 you know fast forward till 2022 when the sort of macro recalibrations happening checks are not getting written we ultimately needed a bit more support and I didn't have the skill set on the cap table that could really provide, you know, incredible insights because folks just hadn't gone through, you know, uh, anything comparable to, to like what I was facing at the time. And so I, I think I probably would have made sure I had, you know, former operators that had been around for a while that had managed a, a startup or a business through a large recession or a large downturn. So, you know, some folks that were building businesses you know, back in 2007, 2008, and definitely some folks, you know, that had even more strategic experience in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really critical for early stage founders to be as thoughtful as you can about the folks that, you know, you're, you're accepting money from. Try to, again, it's really difficult, especially in the early days, but I think it's really critical to, to slow down a bit and think about the skill set of the folks that you're bringing on board, how they view you, your business, you know, generally how excited they are because, you know, you're going to rely on those folks when inevitably things slow down either, you know, in macro level sort of with your business or on a micro or excuse me, on a macro level. So the industry or a micro level with, with your business, mm-hmm. um, you find out like, you know, the companies that make it through are the folks that have incredible relationships with their investors and their partners, because again, you know, it's, it's largely just one person you yeah. know, to deal with another person. Yeah. And so it, you got to be cognizant of, of the motivating factors there. What is your relationship of your cadence like with your investor? And like, we can get more into Spore next, but like, wh- what does it look like through that? Because I think a lot of founders may struggle with that part of it, right? You're, you take money from someone and then you feel like you're obligated to either talk to them every day or you're, you know, you're, or you're on the other side of it. And you feel like I can't talk to you because 
everything's a shit show and there's a 90% chance you're not going to get a dollar back of the millions that you might have invested. How do you balance that versus being, I think, so close to where they almost, I think sometimes investors might feel like, you know, you're still running the company, you know, you're a part of our wider portfolio, but we want to be able to be hands-on with you. And that one person may have, you know, six, seven, eight companies, but versus being too, too far removed to where when things do start going bad in any case, you don't feel like you have that connection. How have you, how have you navigated that now on your kind of your third company and this specifically what you're, the times we're in now where it's not as cool as it was in 2021, so to speak. Yeah. Another great question. It's, it's critical for founding teams or the CEO and or the CEO to value integrity and value honesty and communication with their, their investors. Hard stop. Like it's, it's, it's that simple. And so it's, and the thing is like, it's, it can be difficult, I think, to do this. What if you don't have a cadence of uh, have building a relationship around communication with your investors. And so when things go poorly and then you show up out of nowhere asking for more money or just like asking for support in other ways, like obviously that's not going to feel good. <laughs> and obviously, like yeah. not only is, is it not going to feel good, like from, from the investor's perspective on the other side of the table, but also it just shows a lack of sort of aptitude by the manager and by you as a founding team member on the yeah. other side managing the asset. Yeah. So you have to build uh, some integrity towards communication as well as, excuse me, build value as it relates to integrity and communication with your investors. But it's like, it's easier to start when you just have close to money and mm -hmm. then everybody's excited. Yeah. I would suggest, depending on where you are in the business, if there are a lot of changes and you have, you know, really amazing eager investors, like you can send out monthly updates that could be overkill because sometimes, you know, there isn't that much happening for month yeah. to month. Yeah. But if you're like, you know, pre-seed, there likely is a lot happening actually month to month. Yeah. And it's also just, if you're pre-seed, like that seed round can happen at any point in time. And you want to sort of rely on those early pre-seed investors uh, and their excitement and your traction and momentum to close that next round of financing to yeah. de-risk the, you know, anything that might happen in the future. And so I would, I would, recommend over communicating, you know, the earlier you are in the business, mm -hmm. but as you sort of get further away from that, like quarterly updates, you, you know, can be uh, sufficient and, and, you know, enough time. Mm -hmm. um, but also like I, I'd urge all founding members out there to, you know, just try to build a, you know, personal relationship with their investors as well. And like, again, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, yeah, we're trying to increase the value of this asset together, but like, you want to know the folks that, you know, you're, that you partner with as much as you can. And so, yeah, trying to make a, you know, additional effort to, you know, if we're in a remote world, like, you know, fly out and grab coffee or lunch or dinner with these folks and understand what motivates them, who they are, what really excites them about you, et cetera. So, so when, when, you know, inevitably again, like an email comes when you need some support, it's not coming out of nowhere. Folks understand like who's behind it. They have an understanding about your values, what you see in the, you know, in the business in the future. And then you can have like an educated conversation about what we're going to do next versus it's really hard to get to that, to overcome, you know, any sort of biases or just overcome any sort of gap in time in which they haven't heard from you. Yeah. If, you know, if, if you haven't sort of made an investment into building a relationship with them. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that's a very good, um, a good way to think about it. The earlier you are in that life cycle, that relationship, the more communicative you want to be. So as new things come about, there's that 
you know, that synergy. And then as you get away, you know, your pre-seed investors maybe aren't your series A investors. So the communication kind of changes, but I think that's, I think that's very good. Getting into Spora specifically, how do you, how do you ensure this business? I mean, like, and we could take an example, like I use one medical, you know, I'm black. I've used it probably two to three years. I do feel like there's a missing link, like being an African-American man, like, hey, we're more susceptible to certain types of health issues than white people in general. But like, there's no, there's no, um, you know, there's no differentiation in the one medical service that I get as a black man. That's just kind of like out of the box. But I do think like when I think about a consumer brand, I think about Bevel, which, you know, had a very strong, you know, it was Tristan Walker's Walker and company. I think he's starting something new actually, but like that, there was a clear differentiation of like the way the hair grows on my face and the way I want to shave is going to be different than the way an Anglo-Saxon person's hair grows on their face. And there's a differentiation, how that product experience is going to be, how I'm going to buy that product, what it needs to look like. Is it, is it that kind of curation with Spora? Am I thinking about it right? Or is it something completely different of how you're thinking about building a brand for people of color, specifically in the healthcare space? Like what, what are the key, you know, maybe what are the top and top two or three things you think about every day with, with how you're building this company? So what we needed to address was the mindset that goes into the design of products that perpetuate inequities and disparities. Okay. So when we're starting the business, I knew that if, if we had approached things, yeah, I'm a former designer and product manager at some other companies here in the Bay. I knew that if we had approached things the way that other design teams and product teams had approached designing products, we would create just one medical with, you know, like a different color palette. And that, yeah, that wasn't, yeah. that, that's not going to do anything. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, exactly. We, we, we couldn't, we couldn't use like the, you know, design heuristics from Bauhaus that lead to like, you know, the frameworks and architectures that are the, the back end of like the UX experiences and the UI experiences that we use today, and then hope that we were going to get a different outcome, you know, by serving, you know, different population that wasn't going to work. Okay. And so we took a step back and created a different framework. And so in healthcare, there's this uh, notion of patient-centered care. And so over the last, you know, call it two decades, maybe a little bit more, folks have been using this, this heuristic, this framework, this way of thinking, putting the patient at the center, everything that happens. And so we saw this incredible emergence of consumer forward, innovative companies, One Medical as a, as a great example. And, and I was an early one medical member here in, in San Francisco. Wow. So I, I know the, I know the experience really well. I know the company really well, but although those sorts of approaches and innovations led to more access by leveraging telemedicine and creating a bit more user-friendly sort of, you know, virtual and, you know, in-person experiences, mm -hmm. you could also make the argument that they were exacerbating inequities and disparities by not addressing other issues that were impacting communities of color and underserved populations. But also you, know, you made that argument by looking at the cities and the, the neighborhoods that they showed up in, you know, in their first sort of three to five years of, yeah. of operation. And so, although they're like, yeah, you know, if you lived in lower pack Heights in San Francisco, you had more access, but yeah. like, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, yeah. If, if you were like, I don't think they got a one medical in Bayview or exactly, you know, precisely, yeah. precisely. And so, there needed to be a different way of thinking to address those populations in the Bayview as an example. And so for us, 
that we define that as culture-centered care. And so we're taking that patient-centered care sort of way of thinking, pushing it forward and putting the culture now of the populations we serve at the center of everything we do. So not just the patients, but their underlying sort of culture and that be social norms, cultural norms, you know, the environment that they're in, uh, et cetera. So that was our thesis. If we build culture center products, we believe at a minimum that will increase more adoption, top of funnel, more people will connect with what we're building and they'll opt in more, which utilization is an issue, you know, amongst our community at best we'll produce better health outcomes, but like, you know, regardless where we are on the, on that funnel, it's a good outcome and it's a good bet. And so this is something that is a thesis that I believe, you know, it's a little different, but I think it's so culture centered, but like most certainly, you know, folks fits in this category for LGBTQ plus community, TIA, health, uh, most certainly uh, Walker and company for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as we move forward, you're seeing a lot more consumer brands, whether they be in healthcare, or otherwise take this approach because, you know, cult- we're getting a bit more siloed for a few different reasons in society, but you can get really targeted with marketing and obviously the, the value props of the businesses that you build for subsets of unique populations. Mm-hmm. And, and what are your, what are your, uh, as you relate it back to your founder story, and again, this is in context of venture-backed businesses, how do you right-size this opportunity as it pertains to that, right? Where is it, is it comparable to what One Medical's done, you know, from a, from a, from a market size component, or is it something completely different because you have that cultural impact, there's going to be additional layers of how this particular demographic does with healthcare as it expands out into other areas, or is it really just you look at healthcare as a multi-trillion dollar industry and you just want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into that particular area? Like how how do you think about it as a visionary of of running this company to 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 create this this gigantic outcome? Yeah, it's it's comparable at a minimum. I believe it's likely larger. And mm-hmm. the reason is when we look at the, the demographics in the United States, we know that by 2040 at the latest, folks of color, Black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans as well, South Asian Americans, Native, and Indians as well, Native Americans, Indigenous peoples will be the ethnic majority in the United States. Although our country in aggregate is getting increasingly diverse every single day, we don't see many innovations in this space. Mm-hmm. We don't see, you know, the waves happening now. Thankfully, we're a part of that that change. But you know, there are less than a dozen other companies in healthcare trying to do something comparable. Gotcha. And so, this is an extremely large market, especially when we look at these sort of outcomes that are being produced. And if left unchecked, how expensive these things can be. How expensive, you know, an ER visit can be for someone that's 45 in, in in Tennessee that hasn't been to a primary care doctor in, you know, maybe five to seven years, starting to experience some complications, doesn't know where to go. They go to the ER. That's, that's an extremely expensive visit across the entire uh, healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And not only is it expensive, the outcome, unfortunately, like time compounds. And so if folks are not utilizing care and they're not you know, managing, you know, their nutrition or, you know, getting the right sort of advice, then the outcome will likely be catastrophic in in some instances, 
or it could just be extremely expensive um, as well. So, you know, a diagnosis of hypertension as an example, or a diagnosis of diabetes as an example. Mm-hmm. And so the further that, the more that we can sort of engage folks early on in their lives, this will create immense savings for the entire yeah. healthcare system downstream. But also, and more importantly, what I care about personally and our team cares about is just will help folks of color live more fulfilled lives by being happier, healthier, and be more joyful. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's what is most motivating is, is you know, getting these incredible testimonials that folks will send in about mm-hmm. how much they love their interactions with their sport providers. But it's, it's really about that. But from a, a sort of numbers perspective, the goal is to get ahead of these downstream cost uh, sort of issues and, and these downstream issues, these complications that could lead to really expensive outcomes for our patients. And, and as you do that, as you think about that, I think that's really interesting. What are some of those things that you've identified within this population that you're serving are the key things? You know, I, I mean, we, I live here in the Bay Area. I feel like I'm from the South originally where health and diet is, is much different. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's approached much differently there, even when I go back, just to see like the types of foods that are kind of normalized there versus like we're sitting in Fida in San Francisco where, yeah, I had Chipotle for lunch, probably a lot of salt, probably not the greatest, but like that's probably within my realm of where I'm at. That's probably as unhealthy as you go. Maybe there's a McDonald's a little bit up the street, but like w- when you get into certain populations or communities with people of color, you know, even me from the South, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you're not even aware of, of kind of what you're eating. There's this great uh, Chris Paul interview he did with a guy, Rich Roll, uh, similar to me he's from South, from the South. He's become, you know, very nutrition focused, plant-based. And just, he talks about just, you know, before this, I didn't really even understand that my diet and what I was doing as an NBA basketball player was so detrimental. Where, where are some of the areas that you're, you all obviously discovering these things earlier to get ahead of them. What are some specific things that you see your uh, end users being benefited by your platform, by the way you're building and product producing it that's differentiated for or specific for them that they probably wouldn't be getting on these other services? Yeah. So I'll give you two examples. So the first is we have patented machine learning technology that can calculate the risk profile for different chronic conditions. And by that, I mean, any patient can come to Spora, fill out a brief questionnaire, and we'll let you know what your your risk profile looks like for things like prediabetes, hypertension, et cetera. And there, we can do that for about 13 different chronic conditions. And so one of the things we learned, and the reason we built that is because we learned in our research early on, is that there's a, a large percentage of folks that are not really engaging with either the recommendations that their doctors are giving or just with the healthcare system in general, because they don't know, they don't have accurate information of, of what's happening in their bodies. And so they don't know how to respond. And so we wanted to address that head on by giving folks the tools and the information, more importantly, to understand where they are today and then how they can use that information to you know decrease that risk profile uh, over time. And so that's part of the you know, new user onboarding. Uh, and it's also something that gets shared with our providers during the first appointment, but it's also just, it's in the app. So our patients can use it however they want to, yep. but it serves as a really amazing point of differentiation for our uh, doctors that have actual conversations with our patients. 
Uh, the second is we released a, a program that helps our mothers through pregnancy as well as their fourth trimester. And so we built this, this care pathway, this program called Spora Mamas, which is designed to um, address the awful um, circumstances around maternal mortality and morbidity in the U.S., particularly for Black women. And so we built this program because we wanted to give Black mothers the information that they need, so the data they need to respond to. Yes, exactly. To respond to on a weekly basis. But also, we wanted to give them the support via doulas, but also through the community so that they understand what's happening throughout their pregnancy each individual week. As things change, they get clear sort of updates from the doula, but also they get you know introduced in, into cohorts of women that are in the same sort of, you know, they have the same sort of delivery due date, the same gestational age. And, and this is something that's been incredibly powerful. So this has, this program has a hundred MPS score, net promoter score. We've supported over a hundred births. And we've also, we, we've got ahead of, of instances that would have led to morbidities. Thankfully, we like, it could have been mortalities, but like we got ahead of cases like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, et cetera. And so that's another prime example of that sort of culture-centered framework of, of that way of thinking that allowed us to create something that was differentiated in the market, but yeah. also allows us to give unique data to the patients, but also to our providers um, to help them react in a, in a way that is a bit more aligned with what the patient needs at the time. No, that's great, Dan. And, uh, you know, definitely share that with our audience, you know, that comes from that. I mean, I'm now about to be a parent number two, and I experienced that as well. My wife is Caucasian, but it is a, a relevant conversation, doulas, management, just the whole process of, of having a healthy, unhealthy pregnancy, right? So that makes sense. As we get closer to our time, I want to talk a little bit more about some other things, right? So as a founder, you're doing this as a venture back play. Uh, you live in the Bay Area. It's a touchy topic, but how do you, how do you think about it for Dan Miller? Like, what do you, how do you, you know, what is your education? And now you've done this three times. You've, you've had an exit. What do you think about for founders as they manage their own personal balance sheet, financials, everything? How, how do you think about that? Because I think one thing that's very taboo when I started starting companies, you know, six, seven years ago, it was very taboo to pay yourself anything. It was like, you almost got to live like, yeah. you know, even today I'm like talking, I mean, I'm a member at Equinox and someone's like, how could a founder ever pay $300 a month for, you know, a gym membership? And these kind of like very, very uneducated people tend to have these thoughts. You've done this three times, but you're also, you're, you know, you're an African-American man. You, you live here in the Bay Area. You understand the cost of living, just all that stuff. How do you, how do you think about that to be, to be frank as a, as a founder? What should founders be thinking about as they pay themselves or as they, look and evaluate exits like what have you what have you experienced so far in your your kind of three times doing this yeah another great topic loaded um, question so, but just just wanted to put don't want to put you on the spot but I, I would love to know no 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 this is this is incredibly important i think from a that that doesn't get talked about often because uh, i think folks take the approach that, uh, that you just sort of outlined and and that can be catastrophic personally but also for the asset and so i, I think it's starting off with my experience the first two businesses that i started i i was not doing, I was just really bootstrapping and I raised a little money, but wasn't taking care of myself enough so that I could show up to work and be my full self and be as productive as I needed to be. 
the sort of by any means necessary sort of grind mentality was very evident in my approach. And like, I, I'm a hard worker. I like to work. I'm also, I've been a lifelong athlete my entire life. And so like those, sort, I, I only mentioned that because, you know, my athletic experiences and my sort of, you know, the skill set that I developed as a, a sort of person to persevere obstacles, like as an athlete, it was something that was showing up in my professional life as an entrepreneur. Yeah. It was, you know, there, there, there's something you have to be cognizant of when to shut things down, Yeah. unfortunately. And that is, you have to have a lot of awareness around, you know, where you are personally in your life, the quality of life that you need to sort of maintain things and, and sort of like the real value of pushing through certain obstacles, you know, that are presenting themselves with the business. Is it something that's really going to lead to, you know, creating more value uh, for your business? Or is, are you just sort of like thinking about things through the ego and trying to still sort of make this thing be successful because likely maybe you have never failed in your life or like you, you like, you know, you took a huge risk and, and yeah. like it's, it's public and like you feel that you need to, you know, this thing needs to be successful because like there are a lot of folks watching and if you're black, like there aren't that many people, like there are people behind you that if you don't do well, that like they're not going to, they're not going to get a shot. All those things are very real. Yeah. You need to, you know, think about on the flip side though, you need to be conscious of the minimum amount of salary you need to continue to show up and not have to worry about you know sort of bills and things that are that exist in your personal life but still allow you to show up and, and do your best work but you know you're not like you know paying yourself like i don't know like two hundred three hundred thousand dollars like you can just raise a pre-seed round like that's not gonna that's, yeah. that's not yeah, you know, that's not that's not a good look. You're not saying you're not setting yourself up for for success. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, like you know, if if you're you know a founder, you have you, you know your value is in long term success, not yeah. only like from a obviously from a vesting schedule perspective, but also like you need to increase the value of the asset and like yeah. extracting that value early on is not that's if, if that's why you signed up for this. Like you're in the wrong yeah space and like you're gonna have a very short career as an entrepreneur yeah frankly. yeah like that like that, that that sort of stuff gets exposed one way or the other yeah and so you know the the, the point is like and it it varies but like you have to take the minimum amount of salary that will allow you to still show up and do your best work without worrying about you know a, a other sort of personal finance related things and you know that number changes and so for me it was like i don't know like initially like 50 or 60k like when we were mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're going to take a hit like yeah, in the, in the yeah. early days, yeah, you know, for, sure. for the reasons that I mentioned. And it's definitely not going to be close to market of like what you were making, uh, you know, when you were working for someone else, but it is what it is. And yeah. that's the, that's the bet. And, you know, if you do your job well and your team does their job well, then you'll be able to extract value in the future. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Dan, this has been great. Uh, last thing before we, we wrap, I know Spora is focused on the end consumer, but we at Modern, you know, this stretch for our podcast or my podcast, it is, it is a lot tailored to B2B founders. And so I know you all have an employer platform or, you know, something like that. Maybe walk, walk us through if you're an employer, your early stage company, you have people of a different demographic working at your company, you're looking to offer them certain financial benefits or, or health benefits. How do they go about working with you all and, and setting up, you know, a company account with 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 you all? 
Yeah. So we have some incredible Fortune 100 clients. We also have some incredible clients that are uh, smaller startups that, that we work with as well. So folks can reach out info at sporahealth.com okay. to learn more about our employer services. But we provide virtual primary care, urgent care, maternity programs, as well as programs to manage other things like hypertension. And we do remote patient monitoring as well. And so for folks that are interested, um, you know, for, for bringing Spore to their companies, we have flexible plans. And so we'd love to hear from y'all. You can hit us up at info at sporehealth.com. Perfect. Dan, well, it's been great, man, having you on the show today. Thank you for coming on to the Stretch 4 podcast, uh, sharing a bit about Spore Health, sharing a bit about your financing and how you finance the company uh, and a lot of other gyms. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. We hope to, to, to see and, and follow the Spore story and the Spore journey. But thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right.